Lord, it is a sweet privilege to worship you, to know that uh, we are loved with a, a love that goes beyond what we can even comprehend, a love that's perfect and that's lacking in nothing. And to know that we're called to love the same way is um, intimidating, frightening, terrifying. But uh, we thank you for the Spirit. We thank you that you don't call us to do something that you don't enable us to do by your own hand. Lord, I pray that you would focus our hearts, our minds, to uh, not be focused on the things here, but on the things above, so that we can rightly see what's here. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all be seated. Let's pray for a local church, sister church, and uh, pray for our time in the next few minutes. Lord, first this morning, before we engage the word, we want to pray for another church in our community and pray for um, their worship. We want to pray for Aldersgate and uh, I want to pray for Rick Prettyman and his wife and family and I want to pray for his worship, Lord. I am burdened for Rick and his his fellow elders and burdened for their worship and their wonder and their marvel at the gospel and I know the impact that that has on a on a church uh, if the elders and leadership are worshiping and I just beg for that for the sake of the church I beg for that for the sake of your name for the sake of Rick's family for his marriage and just pray that he is overwhelmed with the gospel pray that he is ravaged by the cross and scandalized by grace I pray that it's something that invades his marriage, invades his parenting, and his uh, shepherding as a pastor. I pray for this church, Lord, that uh, they are dining week by week, and that they are enjoying you. I pray that you'll guard them as you'll guard, pray that you'd guard every church in our community from a moral message that's void of the cross, or that just implies the cross as sort of a given. Lord, I pray that we never imply something that's so amazing. I pray that you will guard Aldersgate and guard Crosspoint and guard the other churches in this community from ever leaving that unsaid, but that week by week we can make a beeline to the cross, exposing the riches of this story, exposing the wonder of a Lord who took on flesh and lived a sinless life and died in our place, took our punishment, and is now seated as a victor at your right hand, risen. Lord, I pray that that's what fuels our parenting, what fuels our work. I pray that that's what fuels Tuesday, an ordinary Tuesday, and every other day in between. Lord, I pray that that's what's fueling our time that we're about to spend together this morning. I pray for your truth to be on display. I pray that you'll guard my mouth and these ears from opinion and speculation, but that we can lay our lives bare to the truth, exposing truth, shaping work of the Word. As truth is shaped in our lives, we walk away truth bearers, truth proclaimers, and worshipers. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn to um, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm not going to have you look at that yet, but I want you to be at the ready. I have a title for the message. It's not in the bulletin. Biola presses me for a title on Tuesdays, which, man, (laughs) 
I can't give that on Tuesdays. I have a tough time giving that on Sunday. Titles are hard. I love good titles, but I do have a title for this message. The title is Do Not Hinder the Little Children. And it comes from this passage, not the passage you're turning to, but it comes from the passage I'm about to share with you in Matthew chapter 19. It says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. Don't bring those kids around here. I mean, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about rabbi here. He's teaching adult folks important things. These kids are in the way. But Jesus said, you know what? Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his gentle, sweet, mighty hands on them and went away. This passage has meant a lot to me in these last few months. I was burdened for some time sitting in here on Wednesday nights as Scott was teaching through Genesis that, man, I was getting fed. And I was thinking about, you know, it's sort of redundant me being in here. I, I need to eat. But I could be spending some time with kids. The Lord put this passage on my heart about Jesus loving the little children. And I was like, man, why, why shouldn't I be walking with children if I can, if I'm able? So I've been teaching kids third grade through sixth grade on Wednesday nights during the school year, and I've loved that. It's a passage that's been a personal passage for me, and it connects with where we're going this morning. So keep it in mind as we continue, and we'll come back around to it in a few minutes. 99% of the time, maybe greater than that, we come in here, gather as a church, putting our issues aside. In fact, I, I know how often I ask you to put your issues aside and just to lay your lives bare to the exposed word. 99% of the time, we come in and we gather and we do that, putting issues aside, letting God speak. And it has been, in large part, through the book of John, not exclusively, but in large part, where he changes our view of the world. When we come in that way, we walk away seeing things differently. I like that that's usually what we do. God develops through the exposition of the word, week by week by week, a lens through which we see the world. I like that that's usually what we do. Now, there are times, though, much less frequent. I think they need to be much less frequent. Or you become a consumer where we see an issue in our world and we come together as a church and we try and discern what we're seeing. We come in with an issue. So this morning, I want you to come in with an issue. I'm about to tell you what that issue is. You may have a sense already from what Scott shared. But I want us to be okay with seeing something in our world, and then I want us to go to his book and to decipher and understand what we're seeing and what God's will is and how his people should respond. Today, the issue that we're going to be dealing with is the issue of abortion. What I'm going to say is a violent hindrance to the little children coming to Jesus. I want to shoot the elephant in the room first. In seven years of us being a church, we have been largely apolitical, and I like that. I really do. I'm sort of turned off when I hear about pastors standing in the pulpit and pitching a, some specific candidate. I, I have a difficult time with that for some reason. I like that we're in large part 
apolitical. I can think of one Sunday where we sort of got close. It was a Sunday after the presidential election in 2008, November. I preached a message titled, A Godly Response to the Election. But let me strangle and murder the elephant today. This is not going to be a political message. I promise you. I don't know enough about politics to even say anything about it. It's a message exposing God's will on life. That's what's in store in these next few minutes. And his will for the church's response to what this issue is that we're looking at in our country. Last week when we were appointing deacons, we considered a letter that Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy. In this letter, Paul is telling Timothy to, essentially he's equipping him to plant the church. Preach the word in season and out. Do the work of an evangelist. You remember last week we considered in chapter 3 where he says appoint elders and appoint deacons so the church can be the pillar and buttress of the truth. We can uphold the truth, the long arm of evangelism. And right in front of those two teachings on elders and deacons was the charge for the household of God to pray. I had you turn to chapter 2. I want you to see this in chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I believe in context, this is saying all sorts of people. In context, it seems to be pointing toward praying for kings and all those who are in high position. It seems that the church, if we're trying to kind of understand the context here, it seems as if they're leaving those guys out. The church is praying for everybody else, but they're not praying for the the kings. And the governors and the rulers. So Paul says, pray with supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, for a purpose, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray for kings and those in authority that we may have peace. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Man, that's a beautiful, beautiful passage developing what sort of prayer the church should be about. He's encouraging Timothy to go plant the church, to put in place the things that the household of God needs to do, elders and deacons and prayer. And the substance of that prayer needs to be praying for kings and those in authority. That the people of God may experience peace and the gospel can be furthered. That's a good prayer. Pray for an environment where the good news can flow. Watch, from neighborhood to neighborhood, from cubicle to cubicle, from family to family, from the south side of town to the north side of town, and from generation to generation. Pray for kings and those in authority that the gospel may flow freely. In our context, considering this issue we're about to engage this morning, it would be a prayer for kings and those in authority that they would not hinder the little children by allowing or facilitating the termination of life, and I'm going to call it murder, before a child can come to Christ. Look at it through the lens of the passage that I began with, where the little children are coming to Jesus. Consider how Jesus rebuked those. He said, ah, get those kids away from Jesus. He's too busy for that. He says, no, let them come to me. For to such is the kingdom of heaven. 
and this is not a political matter any more than praying for kings and those in authority, that we may have peace and the gospel be furthered is a political matter. I'm killing that elephant. I've been burdened for some time now to preach a message on the value of the unborn, and this Sunday just seemed right, Father's Day. just seemed right. So today I hope to expose God's view on the value of unborn children and how the people of God should respond to abortion. Let me develop the problem a little bit. 50,700, excuse me, 50,766,331 abortions from 1973 to 2008. 50 million, 766,331 abortions. That's an important year from 1973 to 2008. The estimates between 2005 and 2008 are 1.2 million per year. One baby is aborted every 26 seconds. 137 babies are aborted every hour. 3,304 babies are aborted every day. 23,196 babies are aborted every week. 100,516 babies are aborted every month. 22% of all U.S. pregnancies end in abortion. 42%. of women who have abortions identify themselves as Protestant. That's, that's us. 47%. Women report having abortions for the following reasons. 74% say having a baby would interfere with work, school, or other responsibilities. Yeah. 74% say that. 73% say they can't afford a baby. 48% say they don't want to be a single parent. Then go back, going back and trying to research how this happened, how we got to where we are. And I fear that in 1973, in January, that the church was snoozing. It hadn't always been snoozing, though. I'm going to read an excerpt from one of our textbooks at home. The kids are studying... It's from a chapter called The Unaborted Socrates from a book that's called Omnibus. <clears throat> sort of synthesizes biblical and historical and social issues. And here's an excerpt from this chapter. Dealing with the history of abortion. It's not a new thing. You need to know that. It's ancient. In fact, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Not because he was just being obstinate. Because he hated the Ninevites. Because when the Ninevites ravaged the town... They would kill the pregnant moms and their babies. That's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. It's ancient. The Greeks enjoy the dubious distinction of being the first positively to advise and even demand abortion in certain cases. In his utopian republic, Plato requires abortion for all women who conceived after, conceive after 40 years of age. That's utopia. Despite believing that the unborn child was a living being, Plato considered the state's ideals and needs more important than the life of the unborn child. Not an issue not seen in his life. Rome fared no better. You know, the Roman Empire came after the Greek Empire, Greco-Roman time frame. 
Rome fared no better than the Greeks as a protector of the unborn. In Rome, abortion and infanticide increased over the centuries, and by the first century B.C. was widespread. Now listen to this. Only through the growth and influence of Christianity in the empire did Rome eventually outlaw abortion. That's encouraging. That ought to give us some hope. During the first three centuries of the church, the Christian witness against abortion was strong and virtually unanimous. That witness concentrated on three important things. The unborn in the womb is the creation of God. Secondly, abortion is murder. And third, God's judgment is on those guilty of abortion. That's the third thing that the church pronounced. I'm going to deal with that later. The earliest Christian writings after the New Testament, such as the Didache, Epistle of Barnabas, and Apocalypse of Peter, Peter uniformly prohibit and condemn abortion and infanticide. The first church body to enact punishment for abortion was the Council of Elvira in AD 305. Now, this is our story. Don't be so Western that you're like, ah, that's irrelevant historical stuff. Blah. This is the church's story. And listen to what has happened in the church. Nineteen bishops from all over Spain met to decide several important issues, including punishments for abortion. A larger, larger council of Ancria met in 314 A.D. in Asia Minor and similarly enacted punishments for abortion. During the 4th and 5th centuries, five major church fathers, these are fathers of our faith, Basil, Jerome, Ambrose, Augustine, and Chrysostom condemned abortion, and the church's position against abortion was settled for the next 1,500 years. All of Christendom condemned abortion and infanticide until very recently. On the heels of succumbing to the Darwinian evolution myth, much of Europe, in an advanced stage of apostasy, first legalized abortion in the latter half of the 20th century. America soon followed, succumbing in 1973 with the legalization of abortion by the Supreme Court. This is where I'm convicted. You know, Daniel, one of the things I enjoy about Daniel is he prayed, asked for forgiveness for what his forefathers had done. He had a view to the big story. Not things that he'd done personally, but he was convicted about how the nation of Israel had had good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, pre-Babylonian exile. And when he prayed, he prayed for the big picture. Listen to this. The church was so weak and indifferent that to its everlasting shame, not one major evangelical church, institution, or spokesman publicly opposed or condemned the Supreme Court's decision at the time. In 1973, the church was snoozing. It took many years for a small minority of the church to begin serious opposition to the now-entrenched abortion industry. In 1973, Roe v. Wade was passed right down the road in Dallas. Did y'all know what happened in Dallas? <laughs> I've been so ignorant. I told you, I'm, sort of, I'm just apolitical sort of my, in general. I vote, but I'm just not really tuned into all that. This week, I read Roe v. Wade for the first time, the decision. And it happened in Dallas? The buckle of the Bible Belt? Right here at our doorstep in 1973. And the church did not make a statement or resist it. While people really, I'm going to say, conspired to legalize infanticide. And while we know that Jesus loves the little children, the church wasn't paying attention. 
In January 1973, the Supreme Court of our United States excluded unborn children from the protection of the 14th Amendment, which says, No person shall be deprived of life without due process of law. Essentially, our Supreme Court said, Unborn children aren't persons. In reading this story, or reading this decision, I was shocked at some of the things that I read. I've had some folks help me do some research on this and try and understand it. Brent Money said they studied this in law school as sort of the example for bad law. (laughs) And I don't mean a bad law, like, ooh, bad, bad stuff. I mean, like, horrible research. And like a decision that was just, like, how did that even get passed? Like law students are sitting, like, scratching their head and discussing with each other. How did this even get passed? It's just bad law. A guy named Blackman, Justice Blackman, was doing the research. And here's some of his wording on the issue of privacy. The issue of privacy became a big issue in this, or a big part of the decision. It says, the right of privacy is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. The detriment that the state would impose upon the pregnant woman by denying this choice altogether is apparent. Specific and direct harm medically diagnosable, even in early early pregnancy, may be involved. Maternity or additional offspring may force upon the woman a distressful life and future. What? What? I don't know that that's not true for every family. (laughs) Brad Cardwell still has a deer in the headlights look. (laughs) Little Ruby's, how old is Ruby? A year old now. (laughs) Seriously, think about it. Maternity or additional offspring may force upon the woman a distressful life and future. I can't believe the justices didn't look at each other and go, Are you kidding me, Blackman? That's ridiculous. Psychological harm may be imminent. Mental and physical health may be taxed by child care. Seriously, that's laughable, isn't it? I read it and I cannot believe this. There is also the distress for all concerned associated with the unwanted child. And there's the problem of bringing up a child into a family already unable psychologically and otherwise, to care for it. In other cases, as in this one, the additional difficulties and continuing stigma of unwed motherhood may be involved. Man, does that break your heart? Yeah, we wouldn't want to be considered an unwed mother. All these factors, all these are factors the woman and her responsible physician necessarily will consider in consultation. You know, it's easy to dismiss all these justices as just like being possessed or something. But it turns out they actually envisioned a woman sitting down with her personal physician and discussing this matter. But that's not the case now. They have abortion clinics. Somebody told me this week they saw an abortion clinic in Dallas that's called Planned Parenthood Express. Planned Parenthood Express. That sound like a personal physician sitting down with their patient and discussing the factors? Sounds like, sounds like the book of Judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds like the book of Romans where they traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. 
said, I'm going to do it my way. And what does it say? Three times in there, God turned them over. God turned them over. When I'm reading this, I'm blown away. Something else that Blackman offered in his research said it should be sufficient to note briefly the wide divergence of thinking on this most sensitive and difficult, difficult question. There's always been strong support for the view that life does not begin until live birth. Okay, just this statement, and here's the evidence that he gives. This was the belief of the Stoics. Oh, <laughs> that's helpful. A 2,300-year-old philosophy. It appears to be the, listen what he says, it, it appears to be the predominant, though not the unanimous, attitude of the Jewish faith. I want to know what Jews he talked to. He cites one book. It may be taken to represent all the position, also the position of a large segment of the Protestant community. There you go, the church was silent. For him to get away with making that statement, that a large section of the Protestant community says, ah, Life starts at birth insofar as that can be ascertained, he says. Organized groups that have taken a formal position on the abortion issue have generally regarded abortion as a matter for the conscience of the individual and her family. That's crazy. That's not convincing for me. I'm amazed that the other justices walked away and said, okay, that's sufficient evidence. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to see what God says about this. It's my aim that we know what God thinks and that we're ready should the Lord give us another opportunity. First thing I want to deal with is what is our God like in regards to life? Turn to Psalm 139. What is our character, the character of our God in regards to life? Now we're going to get to the truth. Psalm 139. I need to prepare you too as you're turning to Psalm 139. I have four or five passages that I want you to turn to this morning. And I'm going to go to a handful of others where I'm just going to share them with you. You don't need to turn there. But where I do want you to turn, I want you to turn and see it. I want you to see that this is is Bible-driven, not opinion-driven. It's easy to share opinions on anything. But what we're doing this morning is we're seeing what God has to say. You need to see my reference. Psalm 139, we're considering the character of our God in regards to life. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from from afar. (laughs) I'm not a fire. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. A couple weeks ago, we were on an elder retreat at the Cardwell's Lake House. And I think it was Scott that read Psalm 75. And there's a phrase in there that says, your name is near. And that's just been sticking with me, the character of our God, that his name is near. And I don't know if that means that Yahweh, his name is just nearby, or if it means that his name, he's got another name in addition to El Shaddai and Yahweh and all these other names, his name is near. But think about his character as I continue. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together because you're near. 
You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're also there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. Twelve years ago, 13, coming up on 13, I was teaching a Bible study class for young couples in South Carolina. I was teaching Psalm 139. And little did I know that the Lord was preparing us for the birth of our firstborn, who along with our secondborn, are visually impaired. Little did we know that we were being prepared that God knits them together in the womb. And that God doesn't make mistakes. And that God is near You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He's near. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. We connected that. Their eyes were not hidden from him. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God's name is near. He's so involved in creation that he ordains who we are before we are. That's God's character in regards to life. Turn to Luke 12. Beginning in verse 4. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Hairs being numbered and sparrows being known. I don't know what kind of birds these were, but they made me think of chi-chi birds. When I was growing up, the little sparrows around our area down in central Louisiana, were called, we call them chi-chi birds. I still remember the one that I shot in the head with a BB gun when I was 10 years old. I shot him right in the head. I felt so bad about it. That's why I can still remember it. Just envision five chi-chi birds stuck into a little basket, sold for two cents. And you think, that's the picture of meaninglessness. That's the picture of nothingness. Two pennies. They have no value. I, I was thinking about this passage, ironically. Thursday afternoon, Chris, or I, I was taking the kids, the boys... 
Actually, I was taking Luke and his friend to Dallas to buy a bearded dragon for Luke. Luke's been saving up his money to buy this lizard. Big day, man. We went to Dallas to buy this lizard. And on the way there, we passed a chicken truck. You, I bet you know what kind of chicken truck I'm talking about. I'm not talking about one of those enclosed things that say Tyson on the side or anything like that. I'm talking about a chicken truck where there's like 800 chickens on this thing. And they all look like, man, I'm just done. <laughs> I mean, their feathers just kind of flapping and they're just sitting there. Like, man, my life is over. When I'm thinking about this passage connecting with that, I'm going, man, that's the picture of kind of... Their life is done. They have hope. They're hopeless. Who even cares about each of those chickens and knowing that God knows every chicken? God knows every chicken on that truck. When my cat drags up a dead bird, God knew about it. He knows about five chichi birds in a basket. He knows how many hairs I have on my head. God is near. God is so involved in life. The Matthew 10 version of this says that not one of them falls to the ground except that God knows about it. And God is near. God is involved. He's very involved. He knows every heartbeat of every baby in every womb. He knows their days and their coming and their going and the plans he has for them. And I would offer that man plays God when we cut those short. God is near and involved. Counting hairs. In numbering days. Second thing that's true of God is God owns the womb. What goes on in the womb is his work. Let me show you this in a negative direction first. Genesis chapter, this is some of the passages I told you I'm going to move very quickly and you probably won't be able to keep up, but you can jot them down. Genesis chapter 20, verse 18. For the Lord has closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the second time that Abram was a knucklehead where he went into a foreign land and he said, tell them that you're my sister, which was half true because she was his half-sister. But Abimelech said, okay, come on in, Sarah. You can, you can be my new wife or you can be in my harem or something. And the whole house went barren. God closed those wombs. Genesis chapter 16, verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. This is where Sarai went on her own program and said, Let's go make a child that the Lord promised by Hagar. Go into my servant Hagar. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. But you know what? It wasn't God's time yet. So her womb was closed because God owns the womb. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. That's speaking of the husband. Though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It wasn't time for Samuel to be born. That's going to happen on God's terms. At God's time because God owns the womb. Can you be okay with the idea that God closes the womb? Can you be okay with God being that sovereign? You also need to know that it's not merit-based or punishment-based. Now, in this case, we see Abimelech's household. The wombs are all closed just because Sarai was there. 
But today, if a couple can't get pregnant, we can't point to that and say, you're doing something wrong. You need to repent of your sin. Any more than I can look at my oldest and middle saying, you're doing something wrong because you're visually impaired. It's not merit-based because, frankly, there's some pretty sorry folks who can get pregnant just talking about it. They can create the need for a foster home real quick. Meanwhile, it's real hard to become a foster parent. The irony is just crazy. And there are some Christ-adoring folks who aren't able to get pregnant. It's not merit-based any more than it's merit-based who can't see and who can. But God owns the womb. When it's closed, it's closed because he closed it. And he can do that because he's God. Let's look at it in the positive direction. Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. God told Abram, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. He's talking about kids. He's talking about a a, a heritage, a family. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. Genesis chapter 21, verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Watch. At the time of which God spoke to him on God time. God 30. What time they have a baby? God 30. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. You got to see that. The Lord gave her conception. You know why he can do that? Because he's God and he owns the womb and she bore a son. Job chapter 10, verse 8. Your hands. Job is trying to figure out why is this all stuff all happened to me. He says, God, I know your hands fashioned me and made me and now you've destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay. And will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? That's like saying, didn't you cook me? You remember when you baked me? You clothed me with skin and flesh, and you knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my life. God can do that because he owns the womb. Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. I don't know where Justice Blackman got his research, but you want to know what the Jewish thought is on life? Those are all very Torah passages. Every single one that I just shared with you are Old Testament passages. He didn't talk to a good Jew, I fear. God is near. And God owns the womb. And God says, thirdly, what's going on in the womb has great value. Here's the next passage I want you to look at. Exodus 21. This is such a key passage. God says what's going on in the womb has great value. this really this passage is going to get at the question where does life begin where does it say in the Bible that life begins at a certain point 
Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman. Okay, don't envision a couple guys like really working hard at work. We're striving at our job. This is a kind of a, I guess, ancient way of saying when they're wrestling and duking it out. We're talking about physical two dudes going after each other. Like WWF or whatever it's called now. They're duking it out. When two men are duking it out and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. That's sort of a weird way of saying that babies are are born through the, the blow. But there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. So he's going to pay for bumping into her and those babies coming out early, although everything came out okay. But if there's harm, then you shall pay, watch, life for life. Not life for tissue. Not life for fetus. Not life for an inconvenience. Life for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for little bitty tiny hand. Foot for little bitty foot. Burn for burn. Wound for wound. Stripe for stripe. You get the point? Man, that child in the womb has great value. If you want to understand when life begins according to God, it seems that it begins in the womb. And it doesn't begin at some sort of arbitrary quickening point. That's what some of the language has been in some of the stuff I've read. This arbitrary point where the, the, the baby quickens. What is that? Or where they're viable. It begins life for life. There's no qualification there. I believe biblically it shows the picture of life beginning at conception. It's at conception that an egg is fertilized. It's at conception that 23 chromosomes from daddy connect with 23 chromosomes from mommy. And at that moment... The complete genetic code for that little rascal is established for life. At that moment, if he has blonde hair or if she's tall, is determined at conception. Every protein that they ever produce or don't produce, everything they will ever see or be able to see or not be able to see is determined at that moment. At conception, it's all there. Listen to this. This is from Dr. Jerome Lejeune from France. Really. Professor of Fundamental Genetics at the University of Rene Descartes. Sort of ironic if you know how how I feel about Rene Descartes. He says, at two months of age, a human being is less than one thumb length from the head to the rump. He would fit at ease in a nutshell. But everything is there. Hands. Feet, head, organs, brains. In the fourth week, his consciousness, all are in place. His heart has been beating for a month already, and fingerprints can be detected. 
His heart is beating at two months at 150, 170 beats a minute. To accept the fact that after fertilization has taken place, a new being, human being, has come into being is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. A secular researcher says, man, that's, yeah, that's life. A conception. Life for life. God says what's going on in the womb has great value. In fact, the same value of two dudes duking it out. Grown dudes. God is involved in life too before it begins with plans and days numbered and ordered. Remember our Psalm 139 passage we read early on. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Before a day ever took place, you ordained my days. The near God who owns the womb and values life has plans for life. There's a potential to consider that the aborted child in many cases might be born into poverty. We read some of the circumstances. Or might be born into an abusive home. Might be a potential to think we're sparing them of that. Or they might be born with some birth defect or disability. There's potential to think that these lives aren't valued like the Psalm 139 life. It's intricately woven. But God values those with disabilities. God values those born into poverty. He valued a blind man in John chapter 9. He valued lepers. He valued the lame. He valued a poor widow with a plugged nickel for the offering plate. Reading my Bible, it looks like he loves poor people. Looks like he loves the needy and the dependent. He's got plans for those lives. Those little needy, dependent lives are such a sweet context for grace and mercy of the life-transforming work of the blood of Jesus. My dad is one of those kind of men that has gone door-to-door, knocking on doors, telling people about Jesus, man. He loves to share Christ with folks. He tells a story of a visit that he had with a couple where both were in wheelchairs The wife could speak, and she was lucid, but she was completely quadriplegic. I guess she could move the wheelchair with the motorized thing. The husband had no movement, and as far as they knew, was not lucid. Dad tells a story about sharing Christ with them, and he asked the woman, he's speaking to the woman, if she wanted to ask the Lord to be her Savior. So he helped her pray through a prayer, asking the Lord to be her Savior. And up to that point, like I said, they thought the husband was just kind of out of it, just sort of a vegetable. As she prayed, her husband grunted in tempo with his wife. 
He's got plans. He's got plans even for those. Jeremiah 1, 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God had plans for a weeping prophet named Jeremiah. Galatians 1.15, Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, God had plans for a man who would persecute the church and later plant the church all over the Roman Empire and would end up pinning a large part of our New Testament. He had plans for that, Paul. Genesis chapter 25 says the children struggled together within her, that's Rebecca, with Jacob and Esau. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, that's Esau, and the older Esau shall serve the younger brother, Jacob. God had plans for a heel-grabbing liar named Jacob. God had plans for a prostitute named Rahab. God had plans for a man named Jesse. Plans for a little shepherd boy named David. God had plans for a boy born to Bathsheba named Solomon. He had plans for a poor carpenter named Joseph and plans for a peasant girl named Mary. He had plans in the fullness of time to send his son into the world with the likes of this motley lineage, any of which would fit right into that description of why bother with those guys? Distress, poverty. God had plans before he ever said, let there be light. You see that? A God who's near and owns the womb, who values the life of the unborn, has made plans and ordained days. What severe, severe judgment is in store for those who interfere with his work and hinder the little children? Severe judgment. If they live and die unrepentant. <clears throat> Briefly, I want to offer five things the people of God are to do. First of all, we are to pray. You remember the First Timothy 2 passage? Pray for kings and those in authority. There would be time of peace where the gospel, the kingdom can be furthered peacefully from neighbor to neighbor, cubicle to cubicle, family to family, from generation to generation. Pray. We as a church should be praying about this. We should be praying for those in authority. Praying for justices. Praying for presidents. Praying for governors. Praying for all of our local officials. Secondly, we should foster and adopt. James says that it's pure and undefiled religion to care for orphans and widows. So the church should create such an inviting environment for a woman that even considers it a bother 
This life is just sort of a bother to my plans. But they see the church as such an inviting place. Like, man, I'll have this baby and place him there. Man, we ought to be keeping CPS busy. Or maybe keeping CPS employed. They know where to take the kids. The last course we went through with CPS, Christy and I, are, and with some other couples in our church, are going through the process for fostering and adopting right now. A lady told us that there's a church in town that just, man, they fill up their classes. The Johnson Street Church of Christ. Praise God. Go Johnson Street. Man, the people of God ought to be busy fostering and adopting. If we're too busy to do this, then we're too busy to do what God says is pure and undefiled religion. We just got to slow down. Third, vote as if you're not voting. I'm going to qualify the second part of that, but let me speak to the first part first. Vote. This should be a clear issue that defines how you vote or decides how you vote. I'm not going to name any candidates or anything like that. I'm just not going to do that. I have no desire to do that. But let me tell you this, whatever a man or, man or woman may promise or offer, if he's okay with or furthering the taking of lives of unborn children, that should be a definite no. In the Marine Corps, we had these things, that, these criteria that we had to go through before we could launch a Zodiac boat out in the middle of the night off of a mothership and go do a raid. They were called go and no-go criteria. And the number one go and no-go criteria was sea state. If the sea state was too crazy... You could all drown. You'd never get to the shore. So it was a go and no-go criteria. It was a no-go if the sea state was a certain place. And I'm going to offer to the people of God, this is a no-go if someone says this is okay. And there's the potential to say, well, man, it's just a local election. You know what the precursors are to the national elections? Local elections. You know what the officers, offices are? that happened before the big offices, the little offices that seem to not make a difference and have any real significance on this. And you know who influences these guys? These guys. These guys. If it's a city councilman, I would encourage you to ask them or find out where they stand on this issue. It's a go or no-go criteria. If you vote for someone who says this is okay... I would offer that you're in cahoots with where they stand. I don't want to be in cahoots with, those that, with that business. Now, why as if you're not voting? I told you I'd explain that qualification. It means that you know that no one holds any office except by permission. Any office. God never sleeps. He doesn't snooze. He wasn't snoozing in 1973. The church may have been, but God wasn't. If someone is elected to office who is a proponent of abortion, you can know that God wasn't snoozing and Satan didn't win anything. Satan has already lost everything. And Satan does not scratch his behind except for permission from the living God. Man, put Satan where he's supposed to be. Should we be conscious of him, aware of him? You bet. He prowls around like a roaring lion, but he does nothing except by permission. So if somebody's elected to an office that is a proponent of this, please don't do the sky has fallen, hopeless thing. Man, people of God never lose hope. 
We've already won. Can we be brokenhearted? Yeah. But don't lose hope. We can't lose hope in a God who we know is near. Fourth thing is we need to serve. Ministries like the Woman's Heart Pregnancy Clinic, the great place and great way to serve. I would encourage you to find a forward-leaning ministry to engage mothers who may be considering abortion and be part of it in some way. Men, they're not really going to ask us to do any counseling with a, an un, you know, unwed mother. But you can give. I would encourage you. You know, the little bottles, they're cute. And I think they kind of get our kids introduced to the notion of it. But don't throw chump change at this. Make a commitment to a ministry like that. I encourage you to. Giving is service too. And lastly, and what I've really been eager to get to in case the Lord has placed someone here with us that's gone through this, has had a family member or someone close to them go through an abortion or maybe has gone through it personally. The fifth thing that the people of God should do is that we should share a message of forgiveness to those who've aborted their babies. If it's sought. If first the sin is owned. And then it's sought through repentance and faith. And the blood of Jesus is ample. It's ample and it's able. Church should be busy about sharing this with those who've gone through this. Sufficient to forgive even that. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, first this morning, I want to ask, like Daniel might pray, I want to ask for forgiveness for the church snoozing in 1973. I want to ask for forgiveness. The church may have been busy preaching about um, money matters, our um, marriage matters, all things that really have an importance to some degree. I want to ask your forgiveness that we as a church were not tuned in to this matter in 1973 and that we weren't more vocal about what was developing and about your view on life. Secondly, Lord, I want to pray that the gospel can flow from neighborhood to neighborhood, from family to family, from cubicle to cubicle from generation to generation. Lord, we pray for kings and those in authority. We pray for our president. We pray for our Supreme Court justices. We pray for those who are planning to retire or those who will pass away and those that will replace them. Lord, we pray for your hand on them. We pray for those who may not be believers that you will bring them to repentance and faith and worship and wonder in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray big. Pray for revival or maybe revival among the Supreme Court. Pray that for our president. Pray that for others that are deciders in issues like this. Lord, we pray for your fame and your renown and your name to be great. We pray that you will not give us over and give us over 
and give us over because we've traded the truth about you for a lie. And Lord, if you have given us over as a country, we pray that you will take us back. I pray specifically for the church, Lord. I pray that we'll be ready. I pray that we'll be about these five things and more. And that we'll be engaging these things in faith. Guard us from doing any of of them faithlessly. Out of duty or compulsion. But I pray that we will do all of them as an act of worship. Lord, we are so thankful that you are sovereign. That you are near. That you value life. That you own the womb. We're so thankful that you order and number our days and that you ordered and numbered that on Father's Day, the 20th of June, 2010, at Cross Point Fellowship, we would engage these truths. We recognize your fingerprints over this day and this appointment. We're grateful, Lord. We pray that you will cause us to walk in obedience. We love you, Lord. It's in these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have the Lord's Supper. kind of stumbled on a, a scene in a movie and I didn't really see what went on beforehand and what it led up to it but there were uh, two friends it appeared they'd been friends for some time and one was sharing with the other that they had the early onset of Alzheimer's this was an older lady and she was sharing this with her friend. And something really struck me that she said to her. And it was just a moment. I just kind of flipped by it. But she said, when I start forgetting, will you re- help me remember? And I thought about that in relation to what we do. We've been doing this every Sunday now for some time. And it's something I think we're called to do really as often as we dine, really. And I think about that with my family when we sit down to eat, there's an opportunity there to give thanks, to remember. And how do we do that? I started to think, how do we do that? How do we help one another remember when we may forget? We've already been doing it so far this morning. We sing praises to our God and our King. I'm thankful, Clint. Jesus paid it all. It's hard to believe, but hallelujah. Oh, that he loves us. Thank you, Ben, for the reminder in Scripture, God's Word. I think we, we remind and we help each other as a body remember when we share the Word. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the testing genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, I pray this morning, as we take this bread and we eat it, Father, that we would do so in remembrance of Christ, the power of your resurrection, the gift of eternal life, his body broken for us. In his precious name we pray. Amen. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. A little further than I wanted to read. This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ. Father, we're thankful that we can be washed white as snow. Father, we're thankful for the relationship we have with you in Christ by his blood. Sin has been overcome. Satan is defeated. Father, I pray that we be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Darren, come on up here. Steve and Lori, y'all come on up here. Krista's at her training. So, yeah. You hear us talk frequently about God's fame and his renown uh, among the nations. And back at the end of last summer, we preached on um, that God's uh, bottom line, the bottom line, his target is for his fame to be known among all peoples. That's a thread throughout scripture. And it kind of launched us into the church series of what is the church because our mission is to start and plant and multiply that church among all peoples. And there are peoples this morning who don't know him, and there aren't many or at all any believers in cities and countries and among people groups. And so we have decided, because we believe that, that we will be a part of not just having a burden for here, but that we will have a burden for other places. And uh, we're burdened for here because all but two of us live here. Uh, We have two families that don't live here, that are doing just that. And um, we also have a burden for other places where the work, the ministry of the church is weak or non-existent. Darren Sapp is headed out tomorrow uh, to do uh, orphan care. He has started an orphan care ministry. He's going to Ghana to help and strengthen the church there, take care of orphans. Um, He has invested personally, but you need to know that you are sending Darren Okay, we, we are sending Darren, and um, we are invested in this. Uh, we do this so that you will know and be reminded of what he's 
taken off to do so you can be praying for him. Pray for orphan care in Ghana. Uh, Steve and Lori are going uh, on sort of an elder oversight trip to visit the Hucks. That's family for them too. But uh, we've charged Steve to uh, check on Jake, to check on Stephanie, to check on the work there, the church planning work there. And Steve's going to go and it's going to be an oversight trip for him too. And they're leaving when? What day? Wednesday. Okay, so let's, let's pray and just know Cross Point, we're sending these folks to do mission and ministry and be the church. Krista, Stephen Lori's daughter, is at an IGO Global Base Camp right now training uh, to lead a team of college students, and Stephen Lori will be right behind them uh, in Kazakhstan. So we're sending Krista too, and um, we've, people have gone out all year. This is just another way to remind us that we are sending people out. You are doing this. Let me just say this too. Uh, talking about hindrances, not hindering children to come. Uh, we don't want plane tickets, money. We've decided that's not going to hinder us from being obedient to this bottom line. And so if you don't have a passport, uh, get one. I know that some of you can't travel. And I know that very few of us, there may be some you can't. But if you at least don't have a passport, um, that's a hindrance. Okay? So See these folks as approachable to help you do that. See us as approachable to help you do that. Let's all have a passport if we can do it, all right? And uh, just be encouraged in that and challenged by that this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray for Darren that you would empower the church in Ghana to take care of orphans. And that we are so encouraged about what you've already done through the ministries that you've burdened his heart with. And thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be a part of it. And I pray that more of our folks will end up going with him and engaging this ministry to orphans in that country. And thank you for Darren's leadership in it. We pray that you would protect him and, if it be your will, bring him back safely to us and cause, by your will, his travels to be smooth. And we pray that you would, through your church and through your spirit, take care of his family while he's gone. Thank you for Steve and Lori and their leadership. We pray that you would give them uh, extra grace, more grace to minister to Jake and Steph and the kids and the other team members that are there, that your glory would be put on display because the church is being the church and an elder is going to check on somebody else that's in his body and that you would be glorified as people see that and see Darren's work, and that people would see your glory and that your fame would be made known among all peoples. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Anything else? You're dismissed.